kind of kicked them out for a while, but after Samuel, they come back and Saul has to deal with them. So it's not a forever thing. So I, it's possible you could put him in that list, but I don't think he quite fits in there as, as much. The second thing is worked righteousness. I think we can find him in that. In most of his life, he's probably did some of the things. We're going to look at some of the details on worked righteousness. And the other is um, down here at the end, turn to flight the armies of the aliens. And certainly we're going to see that happening with the, with the life of Samuel. That the Philistines turned and ran and didn't come back, at least for a while. Now Samuel wrote the book of Samuel, at least the beginning part of it, up until the point that he died. Obviously he didn't write the part after that. Somebody else picked up the writing of that, but it's um, been attributed to him. It carries his name. Second Samuel does as well. But of course, obviously other people were adding to to the things there. At least one other person, if not multiple people. We're writing in that. The word here, who uh, when it says um, worked righteousness, I did a little study on this word worked. It means to toil as a task, an occupation. It means to uh, to have an effect or to be engaged in or with, to commit, to do labor, to labor for, to minister about, or to trade. Or basically to work. Now after we find out the definition, this is always good to go back through and find out other places in the Word of God where this word is used. One of the uh, very interesting places where it's used, and I gave you the list here, I'm not necessarily going over them in the order that you have them, but they fit better in the order that I gave them. And I was running out of room, so I just tried to cram them in there as best we can. But in John chapter 9, verse 4, it said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. Now I chose this verse first to look at because of the word work that is mentioned in here. And you'll see, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. So the word work shows up three times, but the word we're looking at is only used twice. The word that we're looking at here is the first one, I must work. That's where we see it. And then it's the last one, when no man can work. But when it says the works, it doesn't use this word. It uses the root of the word. So um, I got some some notes on this. And when ergos becomes ergosomai, which is what happens in this particular situation, works ergos becomes ergosomai, when that happened, it depicts an intensified work, a work that consumes your thoughts, attitude, and actions. Now, I have a few other references for you to take a look at. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 10, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. That's our, our word that we're looking at here. She has done a good work for me. So by the definition that we have, it would mean that this is something that consumes her thought, her attitudes, and her actions. It's an intensified work. It's not just something that you do. It is something that intensifies. Going out and mowing the lawn might be something that you do. But it's talking about something that's more intensified. Maybe if you were a, um, a landscaper, that would intensify that a, a little bit more. Become uh, your labor, your trade, the thing that you did. So even though you go out and you cut the lawn, you're no longer just doing a, a just cutting a lawn today this is what i do this is what i go out and and accomplish so that may help you out with some of that in john chapter 5 verse 17 but jesus answered them my father was has been working that's our word until now and i have been working so we're out there doing some things we are consumed this is our occupation this is what we are are doing in acts chapter 10 verse 35 but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him In 18 and verse 3, So because he was of the same trade, speaking to Paul, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. So he didn't just make a tent or two. He actually engaged himself in the occupation, again, of being a tent maker. Now here's one to really take a look at. Take a look at the details on this one. 
In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, this is our last one we're looking at. And whatever you do, uh, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Now here's why we bring this one in and, and show it to you. That word there, whatever you do, is not the word that we're looking at. It is the word poieo, which is the most common word to make or do. And I got you some numbers here for you. This word is used in the New Testament 596 times. 596 times. There are not that many words that are used quite that often. There are some that are used more. But that is a lot of times for a word to show up. The word that we are looking at, ergazomai, is used 36 times. So when you see this show up in the same verse, one that's used 596 times, followed right afterwards by a word that is used 36 times. You can see that this is talking about, maybe talking the same thing, but we're a lot more intensified. So whatever you do, what actions you do, do it heartily. In other words, don't just do it as an action. Don't just go out and cut the lawn. No, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a landscaper. <laughs> do that kind of, do that kind of thing. I'm not just out here to, to, um, teach children, to lead a worship service, to be an usher, to, uh, uh no, I, and I see myself in that ministry. And so that's what he's, he's talking about here. Work righteousness. I don't just do acts of righteousness. This is my occupation. This is what I, what I do. And then when he's talking about these people making the hall of faith here, one of the things they did was because their attitude towards doing things of righteousness was of such that this consumes my thoughts. This is something is, it identifies who I am because it's, it's what I do. Every day I get up, I don't just, I'm a landscaper, I don't just cut lawns, I landscape. Every day I get up, I don't just do acts of righteousness, I am a righteous person. This is what I do. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. So if we're going to see that Samuel was, was fit into this, this area, this is what we want to see happen, that Samuel adopted this as a, basically it's an occupation. This is what I do. And the people, they did more often acts of righteousness. Well, let's be righteous now. But they kept falling back into idolatry. But Samuel doesn't do that. Of course, we kind of know that about Samuel. Let's take a look at the sections of Scripture that talk about him. In particular, the part that talks about him in the beginning here. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, he's already been born. We've already had that in the in the past. But in verse 1, Then the men of Kirjath jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. This is after the Philistines had taken captive of the, the ark. Remember when Eli, who was uh, basically the one who trained up Samuel, and they had gone into battle and they took the ark and they were all excited. They got the ark of God with them. The Philistines were afraid. They got the ark of God with them. And so they said, come on, we're going to die if we don't uh, rise up. And so they rose up and they were valiant and they defeated the Israelites and they took, captured the, the ark of the Lord. And of course, Eli's sons died. Eli died after that. So the ark was over with the Philistines and they had it at one place and of course their God ended up bowing down to it and all kinds of bad things were happening to them and so they decided we don't want to keep this anymore. And so um, they sent it on back. They put it on a cart and the uh, animals just kind of went and walked away and they came right to the nation of Israel and delivered it and Stop there, and so the, that way the Philistines knew, well, God did this. Because they didn't just go anywhere, they went back to the nation of Israel. And this is where they, they brought it, they had the ark rest at Kirjith Jerim. And they left it there. It says, so it was that the ark remained in Kirjith Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So they didn't want to move it. They just decided to leave it there. All is well. And then we pick up at verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods 
and the Astros from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Astros and served the Lord only. <clears throat> now I don't know if putting the the idols away means they put them in a closet, boxed them up, put them in the basement, or if they got rid of them. <laughs> We're not told which one it is. It would seem from Israel's history that they said, well, we don't need this right now. Let's put it in a box and put it in the basement. We never know. We might want to bring these things out again later on. We don't want to have to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> I don't know which way that they went. But whichever way it was, the the Word of God does not rebuke them for, for any of this and so I would I would assume that they did it in a good way. Well, at least the, well, at least assume that of them. So here he leads them into a place of repentance, and that would be certainly working righteousness. First Samuel five or seven verse five, and Samuel said, "Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you." So they gathered together at Mitzpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, "There we have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the children of Israel. At Mitzpah. <clears throat> and so he gathers them at Mitzpah for corporate prayer. They're in a problem. And so they decide what we need to do is we all need to get together. We all need to gather together. We're going to gather together at Mitzpah, which was a common spot for them to go. And their, their purpose here was to have a time of prayer and repentance and ask God to help them with the Philistines and to get deliverance from that. Now the Philistines... They heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah. I'll tell you what, we would find out about that today, but we would use, uh, you know, global positioning satellites and, um, you know, spy satellites and be looking. Oh, they got all kinds of things gathering over here. And, uh, what's, what's happening with that? They didn't apparently have that, so they must have had some kind of spies in the land when they saw suspicious activity that they would report it to the Philistines. And so they saw this gathering of people at Mitzpah, and so they're going out. Now, the Philistines don't know that this is a religious gathering. They think it's a military one. And so they say, we're going to squash this now. We're not going to let these people have some kind of rebellious thing going on. Gather together, get some power. And we're going to get over there while it's young, and we're going to stomp this thing out. So when they heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the Philistines, again, they think this is a rebellious gathering. So they mobilize and head on over. And they don't, they don't take long to get going. They get over there pretty quick. Now the fear of Israel is likely produced from a state of uncertainty caused by sin. Because when you, uh, when you've missed God, when you know that you've been out of the will of God, doing things that God doesn't want you to do, and then bad stuff happens, the enemy can enter in and say, it's happening because of this and God's going to wipe you out and all these kind of things can, can certainly come in. And um, who are you to say? I mean, certainly God is in His um, uh, rights to judge us because we were missing God. We were doing things that we shouldn't have done. <coughs> but have you... Well, well, we'll get into that here in a, in a little bit. So we see here that they didn't run. A lot of times you would think that if you hear the enemy's gathering, well, you just disperse and go. If you disperse, that might tell the enemy, hey, we're not here for military purposes. We're not here to gather against you. And if you disperse, maybe they uh, come on in. They find out that you went away. Everything is, is cool. And then they, they head on back. But they didn't do that. They stayed together. So even though they're afraid, they don't run away. So I put this in your outline for you. Have you ever repented? And made things right with the Lord only to find out that things got worse. That's what you're having here. They've come together. They've repented. They've put the idols away. They're serving God now. Then they come together for corporate prayer. They, they first put the idols away. Then they come together for corporate prayer. Things are turning around. We're moving into things that God wants us. And now bad news happens. So if you've ever been in that situation, that's where Israel is right here. Verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that we may, that he, he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So they see the benefit of Samuel and his prayers for them. So they uh, ask him, don't, don't stop. And they don't go back to their idols. They, uh, they keep going after God. They don't lose heart. They just ask for prayer. 
Now, what kind of weapons do you think that the Israelites have right now? They probably have none. You remember when the Philistines under under uh, Jonathan, when he was going out to battle, they only had uh, a few swords because the Philistines confiscated them. Well, if they did that under the reign of Saul, which is just a you know some decades after this, don't you think they would have done it under Samuel? They took away the the weapons, and that's kind of a common thing for for people to do. If you don't want them to rebel, don't give them anything they can rebel with. So take their weapons away. So they more than likely didn't have any weapons. So when they're gathering, they just have things to to worship God with. They don't have anything to fight the Philistines off with. They also likely have no confidence or experience in battle because when was the last time that they had a battle? They've been serving the Philistines, not going out to battle. Can't have an army. Verse 9, So Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. So Samuel, he's up there offering the sacrifice. While he's doing it, while he's offering the sacrifice, the enemy attacks. And they come up. Verse 10 again. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Have you ever been doing the things that you think that God wants you to do and you're expecting the deliverance of God? And instead, here comes the enemy. Hmm. So they come and they march up against Israel. What's Israel going to do? They have no weapons. At least I assume that they, the Bible doesn't say that they don't, but I assume they have no weapons. If they do, they only have a handful. And here they come. They have no real trained soldiers because Philistines aren't going to let you be training up soldiers. They don't have a general. Samuel never acts as a general. Doesn't seem to be his call. It was the call of all the other judges. It doesn't seem to be his. Now, deliverance comes in a very unusual way. It says here, The Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Now, we've seen the Lord bring deliverance for the uh, people of Israel. We've seen them delivered by water. Much water. We've seen that happen a number of times. Not just at the Red Sea. We saw it a few times in Israel's history when uh, they were told to dig ditches and how the water helped help that one. Other times when water came in to, to be a play. Um, even looking here in the book of Hebrews, we found another instance where it said the water came down and started messing with their chariots and so forth. Down there on the plain. Got all muddy. So we've seen water. We've seen fire happen with God. We've seen other other forms of deliverance. But when was the last time in the Word of God that you can think of that God used thunder? Thunder. Just loud thunder. Now these are these are not little kids. These are soldiers. And thunder got them. I'm sure that they're used to loud noises. But for some reason the thunder thunder gets them here. You know, some people they just don't like loud noises. Other people they don't bother them. Some people can look at a loud noise going on and Makes no difference to them at all. We used to have the blue angels. They used to come flying right over our house. Right over our backyard. They came on by. And every time they come on by, I mean, they, they make all kinds of racket. We just stand out there and just watch them. But other people would watch them and they had to have their hands over their ears. They, uh, they couldn't take that. They didn't, they didn't like that a, a whole lot. And my, my granddaughter's one. She does not like loud noises. Any kind of loud noises. And she'd be, she, Looks to protect her ears, puts her hands over her ears whenever she hears them. Even noises you wouldn't think are loud. She puts her hands over them. She doesn't like to hear those, uh, those loud noises. So some people are more sensitive to loud noises than others are. But these are not guys that are sensitive to loud noises. These are guys who have been through some loud noise things and somehow this thunder affects them. Causes confusion. 
course, this is thunder that comes from God. It's not coming from a storm. So it could very well be that there's a clear sky and they hear thunder. I don't know if there is a clear sky. I don't know if the, if the storms came up, if the clouds came up. and It doesn't tell us that. But God can make the thunder come any way that He wants to. And just one time He's talking to Paul and people thought they heard thunder. So He, he does not need a storm to bring thunder along. But it caused them confusion. So let's read that again. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Boy, there's got to be a lot more to the story than that. How do you lose a battle to a group of people that you've been dominating for decades when they have no weapons? You got all the weapons. You got all the training. You got all the soldiers. They don't have any of that. But you lose. Hmm. Well, we have this note that I found in some uh, looking up on this. This comes from Josephus, who's an historian. He wrote down some things that had uh, occurred or passed down that to have occurred. So he writes this. He said um, there was uh, that the thunder was attended with lightning. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about lightning, but he wrote it down that there was. Which flashed in their faces and shook the, their weapons out of their hands so that they fled disarmed and also with an earthquake which caused gaps in the earth into which they fell. Now, another place I saw said that the place where they ran down to, because it said they, they ran down to uh, the, the next verse. Let's just read it. And the men of Israel went out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. So I saw a note on this one that actually drove them down into a low area where water was rushing over a lot of rocks. A lot of rushing water was, was coming. Whether that water then affected them, uh, don't know. It's not mentioned in the Word of God, but it is uh, mentioned in some some places, I guess just because of the location that it's saying that they're they're at. But if there was lightning and, and thunder and it caused confusion and they dropped their weapons, well, then Israel can pick them up because it doesn't cause confusion on the side of Israel. It causes confusion with the side of the Philistines. They're all under the same thunder. But only one side is it causing confusion. And the children of Israel, either they don't hear it or they aren't bothered by it. And suddenly, the group of the Philistines are the ones that are bothered by the loud noises. So they drop their weapons Got to do something. Israel's got to pick up some weapons somewhere. So it seems like they picked up Philistine weapons. Kind of like when David, when David went out to battle, he didn't have any weapons when he fought Goliath. But he said, I'm going to cut your head off. But he didn't have a sword. But he got, got Goliath's sword because Goliath dropped his sword when he got hit in the head. So David goes over and picked up his sword and cut off his head and then he kept it. <laughs> got to hang on to this sword for a little while. And so he, he did that. So we see that's happened before with the Philistines and certainly it would seem like it happened here. So the children of Israel picked up swords and um, I don't know, how good are you with a sword if you haven't held one before and now you're just suddenly getting one? Well, apparently they didn't need to be too good. And they came after the Philistines and were able to, to defeat them and drove them away. They, don't, they do not wipe out the Philistines. It does not even seem that they wipe out the army of the Philistines. But they cause such an effect upon the Philistines that they don't come back. At least not for a while. Days of uh, Samuel, they don't seem to come back for, the, for that. So the men of Israel went out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mitzpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. What a battle cry that is, huh? Well, so far, things are going okay. <laughs> but that's what he... That's what he... Well, he's just taken over. And so I think what he's saying, look, we just took over, we just repented, we just had this thing. And so far, things are going pretty good. So let's remember that. So I don't know exactly what his uh, intention was for for doing that. 
I think some people would have probably liked it. It says, the Lord is our helper or the, the Lord has helped us or called us something like that. But nope. Thus far, <laughs> the Lord has helped us. Verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Now, what does that mean? It's apparently significant enough that it's mentioned in the Word of God. But what does it mean that the hand of the Lord was against them? Does that mean that every once in a while the Lord go over and rain some thunder down on them? Said, remind them, you better stay right here. <laughs> and I heard that thunder before. That's the thunder from God. Is that what it means that the hand of the Lord is against them? And they say, we're not going. We're not moving up into... And I heard that thunder before. We know what happened. I lost some buddies up there with, with that. We can't explain what had, had gone on. Is the hand of the Lord coming against them and uh, that their, their crops are being affected? Or that other things are, are just not going so well and it's, it's, it's hindering them from being able to muster an army together or to come up into, to affect Israel. So whatever it is, we don't know what it is, but the hand of the Lord is against them. Now notice it's, it's the hand of the Lord, not the finger. Remember sometimes the finger of God is, is He's just using a finger over here. See, sometimes it talks about the uh, the hand of God. Other times it talks about his whole arm. But it never seems to get have to have to get too more much more involved than that. <laughs> Got fingers, hands, and arms, and that's uh, doesn't seem to be a whole lot more than than all that. But this one, it's it's the hand of God. So it's not just the finger. He's not just coming out to him a little bit. He's coming out. He's got his whole hand over there. Holding them back. Doing things. They're, they may want to. They may try to come on back here to, to get Israel. But the hand of God is against them. All the days of Samuel. Doesn't see that, that the Israelites got so strong as to keep them out. It says the hand of God. All the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now again, we're not given any details. How did the cities come back to them? Did the Philistines just flee and just leave and the Israelites come in and take over the cities? Did the Israelites go in with an army and kick them out? Does the hand of God come against them and push them out? Does the thunder appear? What is it? We don't know. Apparently we don't need to know. All we need to know is the end result is that at the end, uh, these are cities that, that um, Israel used to have that the Philistines had taken and now they come back into their possession again. This all came because they started repenting. And when they started repenting, the Philistines saw them repenting, thought they were doing something militarily and came to get them. And it didn't work out all that well. So they got the cities back. Verse 15, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to either Ramah or Ramah, however you want to pronounce that. Down at school, they always like to pronounce it Ramah. (laughs) But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. Therefore he judged Israel. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So we see that he came into a, a circuit. He had a routine. Now, only list four places that he was at. Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and Ramah. List these four places. So we don't know if he spent three months over here, and then three months over here, and then three months over here, and then came on back home. Or if he <clears throat> went out to one place and then came back home, and then out to another place and came back home. But whatever it is, he's on a circuit. He got himself into a pattern. And he, he apparently likes, likes things being done according to pattern done a certain way. And so uh, people would know, all right, he's going to be a Gilgal on these particular months. Every year, these particular months, he's coming because he's in a pattern. And he would come and they would judge. And they would know that, that he was coming to do that. So they would come and they'd bring their court cases there to him and help him decide. And so he'd listen to what's going on. He said, all right, you know, you're, you're right, you're, you're not, and so forth. But in, um, uh, whether other people were involved and helped out in between time, we don't know. But it seems like that that's what he did. Didn't have to fight the Philistines off too much because God's hand is out against them. 
Now Samuel, as we see in the in the beginning and the end of life, he hears a lot of things from God. God speaks to him. So it's uh, probable that while he's praying, he's hearing things from God. God might even be telling him his plans. I'm doing this against the Philistines. Um, we're doing this over here. Or the Philistines are doing this particular thing, but I'm stopping them. It, there seems to be communication that goes between the two of them. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. And the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. So they were judges in, in one of the cities that is not mentioned in his circuit. His circuit was Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and Ramah. But they were judges in Beersheba. Why do you think they did that? But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. And then nice. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And you know how the story goes on from there. But Samuel has a good relationship with God. He speaks to God. God speaks to him. He hears things from God. But his sons don't follow the way of God. Now as God spoke to him about the Philistines and about the enemies of Israel. I'm sure that he spoke to him about his sons. And he may have even had some supernatural things to say to his sons. And say, hey, the Lord tells me. <laughs> so forth. And uh, he, he couldn't have known that any other way than God told him. Those kind of things may have been going on, but apparently it did not have any effect upon them to drive them to God. It drove them away from God. But he goes and he makes some judges anyway. Now, why would you do that? If you've got sons that are not following after the things of God, and it's, this is not a new pattern, why would you make them judges? Why does Samuel do this? I, I don't know. Now, here's the real kicker. Do you remember the mentor of Samuel? Eli. What did he have problems with? He had problems with his two sons. But they were put into positions in the temple even though they were evil. Even though they didn't follow after God, they were put in these positions and then they just got worse. They got more and more evil. And this is something that Samuel saw. He saw it happening. He knows that Eli was judged because he did not keep his sons in order and did not take care of them when they were mistreating the temple in this, the way that they were. So now he's got two sons and they're not following after God. But he puts them in a position. Now, he does not put them in a position in the temple. They would have been Levites just as he was. But he doesn't put them in a position to do things in the temple. Samuel can offer sacrifices and does. But he doesn't put them in that position. So maybe he feels like, well, I'm not doing what Eli did. I'm not putting them in a position to be able to, to make sacrifices. Well, uh, we'll just have them do something secular like uh, making judgment over, over people. But when he put them in those positions to, to do that, they decided, instead of deciding on what cases are right, who wants to pay me more money? And when he found out that people would pay him more, some money to get their cases decided, well, they just stayed with it. And they started extracting more and doing more and more things that were, that were evil, according to the Word of God. <clears throat> Verse 3 again, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. But those seeds were there before. It doesn't seem like they just went bad at that, that time. But you'll see people that are getting positions, sometimes it's positions of ministry, sometimes it's political positions, sometimes it's some kind of a positions of authority. And they use those positions of authority for personal gain. And that's not good. We don't like that we see that. We don't like when we hear corruption in police and that they're using their positions for dishonest gain. 
We don't like when we hear that with government officials. We don't like when we hear that with, uh, with people in the, in the church, people in authority. But whatever pe- positions of authority that people have, we don't like to see that they mis- misuse it. You hear teachers using authority over their students to get the students to do things that they otherwise wouldn't have, have done, corrupted them in certain ways. And then we look badly upon those things. And then sometimes we even look badly upon those positions because of the, the evil that was done in there. And that's not something that we ought to be doing. And Samuel should have stood up and done something about it. But he doesn't do it. Now, as far as we know from the Word of God, he's not rebuked. I'm not saying that he's not rebuked. I'm just saying from the Word of God, we don't know that he was rebuked. I would think that if God dealt with Eli, God would have dealt with Samuel. You need to do something. The people know that uh, his sons don't follow him. We don't want to be under them. Look at how they're doing just in the, the roles are where they are. We don't, we don't want to be under them. So he says, uh, we want to go in a different direction. Because right now it looks like your sons are in, in line for this and we don't want them to be judges over us. So let's go out there. Let's, let's break out of this judge thing. Let's go into to making a king. So Samuel's disobedience in this area, not keeping his sons in line, not bringing them in a, in a place, caused this, this part of the children of Israel going after a king. So it is common for us to blame the children of Israel for doing this, but uh, the person who was at the forefront of it was Samuel. It's because of how he dealt with his kids, that his kids uh, grew up that way. Uh, now, just because kids go bad doesn't mean that the, the fault is always with the parents. Uh, it, it can be, but it doesn't always have to be just, be just because of that. So we don't know all that had gone on. We don't know that uh, Eli didn't discipline them at all. And Samuel was very much, he was in their face constantly. We, we don't know that anything like that didn't happen. Just because we have that God didn't seem to rebuke him, it seems like he was a little bit more involved. In, in speaking to him and they, they resisted and they, uh, they didn't go. But the thing that he had going that Eli didn't is Eli doesn't seem like he hears from God. We had the, the word of God that tells us during those days the Lord didn't speak to anybody. Well, he could have spoken to Eli, but Eli's, he's not in a position here. But during Samuel's days, the word of God is coming all the time. So I, if God is speaking to him about the nation, I would think that God was speaking to him about his sons. And he probably took some of those things and spoke it to them. And they still rebelled against that. So we don't know what side of it went. I tend to think that Samuel spoke the words of God to them and they rejected it. They would have put the fear of God in a lot of people, but it did not with them. So just imagine the type of... Now we're doing all this supposition, so I understand that. But imagine the kind of person that someone could hear from God the things that you're doing in secret. And come up and rebuke you for it. And it doesn't cause you to be afraid of God or fall in line with the things that you should be doing for God. It gets you to be more rebellious against God. What kind of a person is that on the inside? That's the kind of people it appears that his sons were. But again, I don't understand why Samuel put him in a position to, uh, to be a judge here. And he, he picks the city where he's not going to. He says, look, I don't go over there. Instead of the people having to come all the way over here to, to, to one of the other cities, I'll set you guys up over there. Let's see how you do. And they didn't do well. So does he eventually pull them out of those positions? We're not even told that. I would think that he would have because he keeps on going. I would think that he would have dealt with it. But again, we don't know. Put in your outline, this behavior is not a sudden change. This is not anything new. This is with the kind of stuff that they had done. Now, as we mentioned before, repentance does not cause a problem with the enemy. But that may enter into our thoughts. When we repent, when God shows us, you're missing it over here. And I repent. And it seems like that after I do that, the enemy has just gathered up against me. And it, can, it gets worse. Whatever situation I'm believing for to change... It got worse. Whatever problems were going with me out there in the world or on the job or whatever it is, I repented. I made things right. And it seems like it got worse. 
And then the enemy sows the same thoughts into you that he probably sowed in the children of Israel. You see? It did no good to repent to God. Why in the world did you repent to God? God's not working for you anymore. You ought to go back to these, these idols. And he's going to put these, these, these things in there. He's going to be telling us, even though we haven't picked up idols, that whatever it is we're repentant of, see, that wasn't the, that wasn't what was causing the problem. If that was causing the problem, it would have changed. You still got the problems even gotten worse now. So you may as well just go on back to doing those things you were doing. And he'll tell us these things, and sometimes we can just resign ourselves to, to doing that. But the end, the Israelites didn't. So even though the enemies may seem to be gathering against you, even after you repented, and you've, uh, you've done what the Lord seemed to, to say to do, don't lose heart. Don't lose your confidence. I want to bring you back over here to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is Hannah's prayer when she came and brought Samuel for dedication. Remember, she prayed to the Lord for her son, and Samuel is the one who came, and she was going to dedicate him to the Lord's service. And so uh, that's what he did. And we didn't use this before, but you remember when Jephthah uh, and his daughter, uh, it's probably the same type of a thing. He brought her to the temple to be dedicated to the, to the service of God. And this is what, uh, what Samuel is doing. <clears throat> this is what he, Hannah, Hannah's doing. I'm sorry. Well, what Samuel's doing is what Samuel's going to be doing in the, in the service of the Lord. So Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. This is her prayer. Her prayer to God. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Think about that. Enemies are coming up and you smile. <laughs> doesn't say it's a sinister smile. It says she smiles at the enemy. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. That's in a song we are singing in. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to be hungry. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. People are changing their situations. What was in abundance is now going the other direction. And what was in lack is going in the direction of abundance. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts high. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he has set the world upon them. Now we're going to read verse 9, but hold off on putting verse 10 up there yet. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. Now look, see this, this prayer she's praying? She's not just praying all kinds of sweet things like, Oh, bless the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. How many times do we pray to the Lord and the whole time we spend our time praying there? Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Or I say the same things that I said last week or last month or yesterday. Just keep repeating the same things. These are new things. These are things she's just coming out of the inspiration on the inside of her. She is just praying these these words. These are not words she has probably prayed for anything in the past. But these are words that are coming up on the inside of her and she is uttering them out and praying them. So with that in mind, let's go on to verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now look at all that she put inside that verse right there. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And what is it that Samuel does when he takes the judgeship? He breaks the hold that the enemy had over them. From heaven, he will thunder again. It has never happened that God used thunder against the enemy of God. Never happened. 
And she is saying this in a prayer. She's not saying it because of any past experience. She's not saying it because of any verses in the, in the Bible so far. She's not saying it because of anything in history that Israel has had. She's saying this because it comes up in the inspiration. Whether she knows it's prophetic or not, she's just speaking what she feels on the inside, what she senses coming up, and speaks this out. From heaven he will thunder against them. Now Samuel does not even see this as prophetic. If he does, he probably would have mentioned something in this. But he mentions nothing about thunder. As far as we know. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his what? Why is she talking about a king? He will give strength to his king. Now whether this is a prophetic reference to a future king as Jesus Christ or a prophetic reference to the king that would come in, in Saul. I don't know. We might have to wait to get to heaven to find that one out. Isn't it interesting, though, that she brings up the word king and under the reign of uh, the judgeship of Samuel is when king comes up and exalted the horn of his anointed. Now we know who that is. His anointed is Jesus Christ. Which may very well mean that the, his king is the, the king. But what a prayer. Here's what I want you to see in this. When she prays and dedicates Samuel to the service of the Lord, she prophesies about an event. May not even know that she's prophesying. But she prophesies about an event that has not happened yet. But when it does, it's basically God saying, Look, I knew the enemy was coming. It didn't take me by surprise. And way back before you were even involved in the service of God, I had it planned out how we were going to take care of this. That the enemy was going to gather. And I was simply going to use that time of them gathering as an opportunity to put my strength against them so that you would be rid of them for a long time. When we do what God says and God says, I want you to repent, I want you to change, I want you to quit this or whatever it is that he tells us to do for, for change. And we go ahead and do it. It seems like the enemy comes up against us even stronger. Just think back on this example. That God gathers the enemy into one place. Not for the purpose of your destruction. But for the purpose of getting them out of your life. Amen. And he comes through if he has to use thunder something that seems like a non-lethal thing. He can even use that against our enemies and against the things that come against us. Imagine the faith of Samuel. We, look, we, see, we see the faith of Gideon. We, we, that jumps out at us. The faith of Jephthah. Okay, I can, I can see that. The faith of Barak. All right, I can see that. These guys are going into battle. They don't have, they're, they're up against big odds. But by faith, we're going into battle and we're doing this. And here comes Samuel. He's not a general. He's not a warrior. He doesn't handle a sword. All his training has been in the temple of God. Taking care of sacrifices. Tending to the animals that need to be sacrificed. Cleaning up the blood. Dealing with the problems that Eli's sons would bring. This is what he spent his time training. But when he's called upon and the battle comes to him, he doesn't back down. And he sends the people of God out into the battle with no weapons. Does God speak to him and tell him what he's going to do? I don't know. He doesn't mention any of that. But he sends them out. It's one thing, folks, when we had the faith of God to put ourselves in danger. It's a whole nother matter when we have the faith of God to put other people in danger. That's what Samuel did. He himself was not going into this battle. He's back over there with the sacrifice. He's back over there praying. You all go into battle. I'm going to stay here and pray for you. What's really neat though is that the people were okay with that. You stay back here and pray. We'll go. 
Wow. But what faith he knew, me staying back here in prayer means you guys have success. That is something. That's the faith of Samuel. It's a little bit different from all the others. But it's something we can learn from. Keep in mind, when the enemy gathers against you, it doesn't mean our demise. It means God's rallying the victory. Father, we thank you that even before the enemy has gathered against us, you have seen a way and a plan for a way for deliverance to come. When Israel needed a judge, you began way before raising up one by the name of Samuel. Training him in things that doesn't seem to be what a deliverer would be trained in. But you taught him how to pray. You taught him how to hear from God. You taught him how to speak words of faith. We may not know too much of the stories that occurred before this one. But it would seem the reason that there are other times that he heard the voice of God, believed those things, and changed something that was going on. Got him ready for this battle. Help us, Father, to be as Samuel and the children of Israel were here. That when we're doing the things that are right, when we're finally getting around to getting rid of the sin in our life, getting rid of the problems that were plaguing our life, that when it seems like the enemy rises up because they see this gathering and they feel threatened by it, it doesn't mean that we turn our back on the things that we were doing, but that we look for the deliverance of God. Whereas the enemy comes together, it's that much easier to wipe them out. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.